So we're going to talk about revival, and uh, we're going to be talking about revival for the next couple of weeks. And um, there's a gentleman named Patrick Morley that some of you may recognize the name. He wrote a book called The Man in the Mirror. And in that book, he, uh, it was an influential book in a lot of different places, a lot of men's ministries. But he did, has done a lot of work on what revivals are, what they look like. And so today, as we start, it makes good sense to try to figure out, okay, we're talking about what is a revival? What does that really mean? And, and what does it look like? So the first in America was called the Great Awakening. And it was in 1734. A gentleman named Jonathan Edwards, he was a young pastor in Massachusetts, and some observers made this statement, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, and here's an important piece to this, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity. That's something that we would call dead religion. There's a passion that comes with being a Christian that is not always found in God's church. But the transformation moves from that into the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. Say that. Say power with me. Power. power. See, the Holy Spirit comes with power, and it transforms everything in our life. And that's the essence of what revival, real revival. Now, we've all been to revivals, right? The, tent, the, the, the revival, you know, where you bring in the guest preacher, except Caden has not <laughs> been to a revival. So, so we'll have to have a revival here. So, they, so, so <laughs> what is a revival? Uh, this is about as good a definition as we're going to get. It goes from being cold and lifeless into vibrant, powerful, and alive because the Holy Spirit infuses us. It supernaturally transforms not just believers, but non-believers in our community, in our church, all around us, and even in the world. Some of these revivals have spread throughout the world because people get a sense of the power of God, the very power of God, and, it, and it's transformative. Now, that transformation doesn't always feel great because there's going to be a conviction sometimes that comes with that when we're not doing what we're, when we have sin in our life we have a desire to confess and to repent which simply means to turn away from to turn away from the sin and turn back to God and and that happens in the in a revival people thirst thirst for God's word not just to you know read it but when they read it it goes in and it goes deep and it changes things in their heart changes things in their lives conversions happen lives are renewed and and even those who may have have stumbled and fallen away are revitalized and and revived and brought back to life by the power of the holy spirit so i wanted to touch on and i'm going to go through these really quick online under our resource on the on the um, arborpoint.org page there are links that will give you more information. But I want to touch on some of these. The first one was the one that I mentioned, uh, Jonathan Edwards in 1734. And, and he was uh, plugging along, and, and after about six months, he hadn't been doing very well. He didn't get very many folks saved. <laughs> and then he got five or six folks to convert. One of them was uh, a woman, and he had this to say about her because she concerned him. He, he wrote, she had been one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. Now, I don't know exactly what a company keeper is, but it doesn't, <laughs> but it doesn't sound great. Uh, and he was worried that, that because she got converted, it would ruin the, you know, that the flame would go out. But what actually happened was that the flame 
roared to life and more people got reached and 300 people converted in six months. And that may not sound like a lot. There were 1,100 total in the town. 300 of 1,100 got converted and then it spread out to another 100 towns outside of that. That's what happens in revival because you can't contain it. That joy rises and you can't shut up about it. You know, and so you have to share that with people. So that was 1734 to around 1740, and then there's a gap. And then there was the second Great Awakening. This is different folks call it 1790, 1800 to 1840. And in this one, there was a gentleman named James, James McGreedy, Logan County, Kentucky. And he started camp meeting revivals that drew thousands. And he was in Kentucky, and they would come all the way from Ohio just to be a part of the camp meeting revivals. And another gentleman in 1824 named Charles Finney, and he was the one whose books I got to read in, in seminary about how to do a revival and those kinds of things. He began his career, and he converted 500,000 people, 100,000 in Rochester, New York alone. And again, it spread to 1,500 towns outside of that. By 1850, those connected to evangelical churches in the U.S. rose tenfold, 7% to 13%, which is like, okay, that's okay. But the number, 350,000 to 3 million church members. That's a revival, right? That's what happens in revival. And then there's a gap. You're starting to see a pattern here, huh? And then in 1857, uh, a lay person, the Royal, the, the Royal Dutch, the North Dutch Church, that's the Tea Party people, the Royal Dutch people, um, <laughs> the, the North Dutch Church hired a businessman. His name was Jeremy Lamphere to be a lay missionary, and he didn't know what to do, so he, he went to God, and he said, God, what do you want me to do? He went to, uh, and to just in prayer, and he started a businessman's prayer meeting, and it started out, six attended the first week, 20 attended the next, 40 attended the next, and then they had to add, a, add days to where they were daily meetings, then they had to add churches because the space was taken, and revivals broke out everywhere during that period of time. And that act is sometimes called the Great Prayer Meeting Revival. It spread throughout the world. It didn't stop. And there was a guy that the name that is for theologians is very familiar. His name's D.L. Moody. He came through this. 1857, was, he was part of one of these prayer meetings. And then in, in, uh, he went to the British Isles and, and preached in the British, British Isles to 2.5 million and then he came home in 1875 and, and helped trigger urban revivals. One of the greatest preachers in our American history. And then you know what happened after that era? There was a, there was a gap, you know. And then in 1906, and this is a inter really interesting one, in 1906, it's called the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> there was an African-American preacher. His name was William J. Seymour. Now, he was a holiness pastor, blind in one eye. He went to Los Angeles as a candidate for a job. He preached the first sermon, and then they shut him out and wouldn't let him preach the second one. He couldn't even get in the building. So he started um, prayer meetings in, at, in, in a local home. And what happened was the Holy Spirit fell, and they, they called it the second blessing. So after months of concerted prayer, Prayer, hear that. Prayer is critical. The Holy Spirit fell, and, and then they, had to, they grew. The home meetings grew until they had to buy a beat-up old broken-down Methodist church <laughs> on 312 Azusa Street. And the revival continued to go on. Now, out of, one of the greatest things out of that was two movements. The Pentecostal movement was born out of the Azusa Street revival, and the Charismatic 
movement was born out of that revival. And they're both still going on today. And then after World War II, there's a couple of guys that you may recognize. You ever heard of Campus Crusade for Christ? Bill Bright. He came along at this time, and that was a campus revival. And then there was this dude from, I think, North Carolina. <laughs> Billy... Yeah, that guy. Billy Graham came along, and, and, and most of us are very familiar with him. He preached 400 crusades, reached 180 million at the crusades. That's crazy, isn't it? 180 million people attended his crusades, plus television was now in play. So Billy Graham impacted literally, I would say, billions of people over the course of his life through his uh, preaching and his teaching. And then there was... A gap. And now there was the Jesus movement in the 70s, but it really didn't coalesce very well. <laughs> Vicky's like, uh, but it didn't coalesce into a true revival that reached uh, beyond very far. Uh, but so there was a bigger gap, really, from the kind of the end close of Billy Graham into the 90s. And, but in the 90s, a gentleman named Henry Blackaby from Texas started a campus revival. And some of you may recognize that name. Experiencing God is a series that comes from Blackaby. He's a Southern Baptist guy, but a uh, really great teacher. And um, Promise Keepers. Any of y'all familiar with Promise? Yeah. Promise Keepers came in the mid-'90s, started at, in, at the University of Colorado uh, with 4,200 men in 1991. 93, it was up to 50,000 men. And in 97, the Million Man March uh, at, national, uh, at the National Mall, there were a million men at the, at the mall. So since that time, the late 90s, there has not been a significant revival in the United States. So we're in a gap right now. So some of the things... What do you look for in a revival? One is timing. There are some things that are characteristic. Now, each revival has its own elements. Like Jonathan Edwards was a young preacher, so the, the Great Awakening was started you know, with a focus there. Um, the Azusa Street was, inter, was, was interracial. Um, the businessmen were part of the 1857 Businessmen's Prayer Group. But, so there are always distinctions, but... Above and beyond that are some really powerful similarities and things that, that are important to look for. Uh, the first of which is that revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline. Fortunately, we're not in one of those, and everything's going great right now. Um, just checking to see if you're listening. <laughs> you know, during times of, of spiritual decline, during times of spiritual challenge, that we're, there is a drawing that leads us into intense prayer. And prayer is the, is the girding of revival. It's always the girding of revival. And God puts into the hearts of many this desire to pray. And, and I got to tell you, since I've been part of the pastor's prayer groups with the One Race Movement and then praying for us I'll, about five months ago, I started, I was woke up at four o'clock in the morning and I don't get up at four o'clock in the morning. Caleb gets up four o'clock. No, um, not by choice. I woke up at four, and I knew that I was supposed to spend time with God. And with the exception of two days since then, I have been woke up between three forty-five and four forty-five in the morning to pray every day. Once I was five thirty, and once I uh, skipped out. Um, that's not for me. 
Something's happening in this era and in this time and in this place. There's a drawing to prayer. I'm not the only one that this is happening to. You know? So, so enter in to pray. Listen to that voice. Because prayer will be the undergirding of whatever we do. The preaching of God's word will be done with depth. And, and it's going to move because of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit will take the, us to a, a place that we can't go without the Holy Spirit. And that leads to people who are struggling, people who have sin in their life, feeling a sense of conviction that draws them closer to God. And please know, if you're feeling a sense of condemnation, that is not of God. That is of the enemy or self-talk. Conviction is that feeling that I need to fix something. I'm off track and I need to get back on. And God uses conviction always to, to draw us near. And out of that comes reformation and revival. And that's what we want. We want revival. We want... For, for a change in our hearts and in our lives, we want this lasting fruit that happens. New ministries happen. Society changes. Uh, reforms happen. People convert. So those are seven of the elements that are common at the core of revivals. And depending on kind of where you are, there are some, there are some differences as well with manifestations, like some, some denominations, there's fainting or groaning or uh, miracles that vary by culture and denomination. Here's another thing. Revivals are always messy because the spirit is moving and it's drawing people who may not speak Christ Christianese. You know, they may not understand the language. They may not understand what goes on in a church or the expectations. And so it gets messy, which is perfectly okay. You know, it's a good thing. It's one of the great things about Arbor Point Church is, is that it doesn't matter here. You get to be who you are. You know, bring your stuff. You don't get better and come here. You come as you are. We really are okay with that. Um, and they're cyclical. They crest and they decline. So is America ripe for revival? Yeah, I think so. It's an interesting place that we find ourselves because there's a lot of talk about the decline of the church. And yet, if you look at, at some of the numbers behind that, the mainline churches are declining. There's little doubt about that. But the church itself, the top line up there is a research, research from 2007 to 2014. The weekly attendance at church has fallen from three per, by 3%. But the one to two times a month group has not changed. And you wouldn't think that given some of the conversations that are out there. Uh, that journal points out that there are 50,000 more congregations since 1998. And there are 2 million more people, not just 2 million people that have been converted or saved, 2 million more adults. Now, most of that is happening in a non-denominational setting. You have to wonder why that is, but that's a question for another day. God is moving. God hasn't given up on his church. God has us in a, in a, in a place that, that is ripe for, for going forward. The problem with, with a lot of what's going on in the church is that we may be prevalent, but we're not powerful. The Holy Spirit gives us power. Power? power to see lives change, to see hearts change, to see the movement among us and among others. See, our nation needs that right now. We're ripe for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's the other piece, though. You can't manufacture a true revival. You can't just manufacture your way into it because they come from God. And this passage is critically important. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. 
and I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. That first part, if we'll humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, God will respond we have to, and turn from, our, our, from, uh, from sin. God will respond to that. See, we can, we can pray and we can ask God to intervene, and he will do that for us. I and those uh, that are involved with the One Race Movement believe that the time is now to engage in seeking God. That this moment is a moment that's incredibly important. And we are in fasting and prayer. 40 days of fasting and prayer leading up to Stone Mountain. And the catalyst, and that's actually the launch of the movement. One of the goals with One Race, honestly, is because we're bringing pastors together, how cool would it be if, this, if we at Arbor Point joined with, with uh, Bishop Glenn Collier's African-American church and we started doing ministry together. And we started joining together, not just the pastors, but the congregations and the people. And we became the, the kingdom people that we are called to be. Because that's, what, that's the core of one race, the core of who we are. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you thought of what that means? That God's kingdom can be here. When we say yes to Jesus, we're kingdom living. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a passage in Joel, and I'm going to kind of go, go a little bit to it. This is really important in, the, in one race, but it's powerful. I'm going to read this from the message. And I want you to hear what God is saying. Now, Joel 2, it's, it's an Old Testament prophet. And the first part of this is, you know, end of days, get your stuff together. And then he goes, well, but, there, you know, I'm still, I'm still listening. And then there's this. It says, and that's just the beginning. After that, I will pour my spirit out upon every kind of people. And in one race, we want every kind of people. doesn't matter, white, black, uh, Asian, Hispanic, all of that doesn't matter. Because when we're in the kingdom, you know what the kingdom's going to look like? It's not going to be any one group. It's going to be all of us together. That's what kingdom living looks like. That's what we need to be. That's what the church should look like. We should look like our, the, 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 what we're going to be in heaven. Uh, pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, which is not an uncommon kind of passage in the Old Testament. This next one, however, is very uncommon. Also your daughters. See, this is about all. You've heard me say all means all it's everyone so he's going to pour his spirit out upon all people sons and daughters now i don't know why he had to say this your old men will dream thing but your old men will dream and your young men will see visions you know so there's going to be an outpouring of the spirit that moves us somewhere that we've never been drew it's going to grab you you're going to see visions i don't know what of but you're going to see visions of of god's place that he has for you in your life and he's going to, uh, then, then he's going to do the wonders in the sky. Oh, no, I missed some. Spirit on the servants, men and women. Again, it's this concept of all kingdom building. It's powerful. That's why we, gravi- that's why we gravitate to this in one race, because that's what we want. My gosh. You know, if, if you haven't been to a one race event, one of the, the way that they work, and I went, the first one I went to was at Victory Hamilton Mill, and I really didn't know anything about it. And I went, and it started with worship music. And then a Hispanic, a black, and a white pastor got up, and each of them prayed. 
They prayed for the movement. They prayed for our community. They prayed for, for revival. And then there was more worship. And then three different pastors got up and they prayed. It wasn't a preaching moment. It's worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. And it was powerful for me. And I wanted to be a part of it that night. Because I want that so badly for us. This is a special congregation. Y'all are a special place. Not all churches say, come as you are. Well, they all say it. Not all churches mean, come as you are. And we don't care. And, and, and I love that the kids get to be kids. You know? This is a special place. We have an opportunity now to move into this. Whoever calls help God gets help. You ever need help? I do. Help God. And as we move into this calling of ours in this place, we will see the movement of the Spirit in a way that we can't fathom. And my heart yearns for that. My heart breaks for that. You know? And I fall short, guys, just like everybody else. But when I do, I try to pick myself back up and come back. And I hope that you do too. Because the Holy Spirit is up to something in this place. And I hope that you want to be a part of what that is. If you'll bow with me. Father, at this time, Lord, we lift up all of those things in our life that keep us from you. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to move in, in our hearts and in our lives and that we will never be the same because of it. Amen.